good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon where you are on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn when almost anything, certainly on this show, can happen. Well, tonight's show, and I'm very sorry that everything got postponed last weekend, but uh, those headaches are just... I, I hate talking about symptoms, but they're incredibly debilitating. Before you all want to send me all these mainstream drugs, please don't. I mean, the, look at the side effects, and, and I don't care what they say about the percentage. I'll be the unlucky one that winds up sounding absolutely drunk or stoned on the air. And we've been down that road, so uh, Don is laughing. Okay, um, tonight is going to be pretty amazing. Um, in fact, in a weird kind of way, remember I've said often, slightly tongue-in-cheek, but with Kinti around, I don't want to do it totally tongue-in-cheek, uh, that God is really our executive producer, because the fact that this show got delayed a week from last Saturday means that tonight I can tell you some more amazing stuff about the Didymos dimorphos impact than I could have possibly told you a week ago. And if we had delayed this until next Saturday, which is actually going to be part two of tonight's show, which will include, by the way, a update on the moon. Uh, there's interesting stuff going on with Artemis and CubeSat and Denuri, and I'll bring you all up to date momentarily on that. Um, we will know a lot more about Didymos, maybe... Well, let me rephrase that. We may know a lot more about Didymos. Because frankly, I'm going to bet dollars to Navy beans that what we're going to have for you tonight in the next three hours is such stunning, checkable, scientific information that is frankly off the edge of the paper and in some other dimension that when NASA does its update, which they're going to do on Tuesday, they're holding a Tuesday um, afternoon press conference for DART, and they're going to trot out some new data. I guarantee you the data that they will present will come nowhere near the data we're going to present tonight and the confirmations of some of it that we will have given another week, another seven days. So without further ado, let me swing right into tonight. Uh, what you want to do to kind of follow along for you who are new to the show, you want to go to the other side of midnight.com. That's our URL. Click on that. That will take you to tonight's uh, URL, our main homepage. Click on tonight's banner. Uh, it, there's a typo there. It says October 1st. It's really October 8th. Kintia didn't get a chance to change it. Click on that banner. Did NASA deliberately, accidentally, totally obliterate its target asteroid? Click on that banner. That will take you to the guest page. Right under there where it says uh, past links to items, click on my name. That will take you to my section of Radio with Pictures. And we're going to start tonight with an update on Artemis, as you know, because of Hurricane Ian. They rolled a few days before the hurricane made landfall the entire Artemis SLS stack, the several miles from the launch pad 39B back to the vehicle assembly building uh, and they tucked it safely inside, closed the doors and it weathered the storm perfectly fine. They're now going through checks. 
They've had to replace some batteries. There's an onboard termination system, which is basically for range safety. The uh, Space uh, Force demanded that they kind of do that. And there's some uh, recharging of batteries in the CubeSats. The Artemis booster is going to take something like 10 or 13. I kind of lost track. It's somewhere in that neighborhood. CubeSats, piggybacking, uh, hitchhiking, uh, en route to the moon. And they'll be dropped off in various orbits, including one, which is a solar sail in a CubeSat, which is going to navigate its way to an asteroid. Isn't that nice for kind of a segue to tonight's program? Anyway, um, that's all kind of in preparation for them setting a new launch date. It's not going to be in October. It's going to be sometime probably around the middle of November. And as the church lady would have said on Saturday Night Live, isn't that special? Because guess what's happening in the middle of November? The capstone unmanned mission is getting to the moon putting itself into orbit to test the gateway uh, rectilinear halo orbit. And with Artemis arriving just a a few days uh, before or after, depending upon which launch window they, they choose, those two NASA missions will get to the moon essentially simultaneously with cameras. I mean, literally dozens of cameras, which once and for all can confirm our model that the moon is filled with ancient, ancient artificial ruins. Maybe built by aliens, maybe built by our great, 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 great grandmothers. But both of those missions are now going to arrive in sync. And if push comes to shove and I was woken up and given sodium pentothal at three o'clock in the morning, uh, I would tell whoever was doing the interrogation that I think that the Artemis mission has been deliberately delayed. So these two missions, the unmanned capstone and the manned uh, potential, because it's going to be unmanned on its first test flight, Artemis mission, carrying something like 11 or 12 cameras of incredible fidelity and range and recordability and downlinking potential and all of that, they're all going to arrive at the moon in orbit simultaneously. And they may blow the doors off of the cover-up of the last 50-plus years of what's really waiting for us on the moon. So, if you look at item number two, that's an update on Capstone. Remember, Capstone, after its mid-course, to keep it on track for its uh, November 13th arrival, suffered some kind of weird upset right after the successful mid-course back around September 8th. It's taken them a month to come to grips with how to stop the tumble and the spin. And they did it literally on Friday. I think they did it yesterday. And so now Capstone is in a partially uh, recovered attitude and uh, mission profile. They will complete the rest of the uh, recovery later, sometime in the next uh, few days, I would imagine. And then they will be back on track to get to the moon, as I said, November 13th, just when Artemis is arriving. Isn't that special, as Church Lady would say? Item number three, the South Korean Denuri unmanned mission. Remember, Denuri is kind of a fusion of two Korean words, which means enjoy moon. 
is that more Emily Dickinson? Because <laughs> believe me, if somebody finds ancient lunar ruins on the moon, an awful lot of people are going to enjoy moon. I mean, really. In fact, it will probably, and we're going to get to this momentarily, it will probably change the world for the better. And I will go through that momentarily, how that actually hangs together. The Denuri Ballistic Transfer Orbit, remember, this is one of those slow boats to China where you launch and instead of taking just three days like Apollo did to get to the moon, it takes like three or four months. That's because they discovered through these incredible supercomputers that have come online at the space agencies, both in the U.S. and around the world, that there are certain orbits where if you just launch just above escape velocity, which remember is around 25,000 miles per hour, what you wind up doing is drifting toward the moon in extraordinarily elongated orbits that literally take months for you to arrive. But it really, 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 can I add a couple more reallys, saves fuel. So it's an ultra cheap way to send even little CubeSat spacecraft, which can be launched by talented and funded amateurs. Hint, hint. We're going to be talking a lot about amateurs and their uh, role in saving science later on in the morning. Literally, amateurs, if they get together and they get the right people and they get the right funding and it's about uh, like a Mercedes, maybe, they can launch their own spacecraft to the moon and go into orbit, which, of course, is what the CubeSat mission is basically demonstrating. Um, Denuri is a much bigger spacecraft. I mean, it's funded by a government, the government of South Korea. It's got a NASA payload on board, uh, which is really special. It weighs 33 ritual pounds. It is called Shadow Cam. It's run by Mr. Coverup himself, Michael Malin, the chief NASA scientist who has been hiding stuff on uh, Mars for decades and decades with various missions. The guy who many years ago had some really bad things to say about my friend Arthur C. Clarke, which of course put him beyond the pale for me forever. But he is the chief cover-up guy at NASA who's been hiding all the good stuff on Mars for decades and is in charge of the shadow cam, the 33-pound shadow cam, going to the moon, into lunar orbit, on Denuri, the Enjoy Moon, South Korean spacecraft, and the shadow cam is supposed to take pictures of the permanently shadowed craters at the lunar south pole, so that the Artemis third mission, mission number three, which we crewed with men and women, can safely land near the south pole of the moon and begin setting up a permanent lunar base for the United States of America. And as I've said in some previous shows, uh, this really is a kind of a cover story because if my data, which came from the Lacrosse mission, which I published a couple weeks ago here on the other side of midnight, if that data is correct and we've got multiple images in color, the moon is covered by this extraordinary glass dome, which now is in incredibly bad shape because it's so, so ancient and meteor battered, but it's thicker over the poles, particularly over certain parts of the poles because of geometry, how it uh, got eroded by micrometeorites over literally millions of years. And so I firmly believe that the shadow cam 
again helmed by Mike Malin. Its real job is not to look down into the craters and with faint scattered sunlight from the high walls around these craters, which are still seeing sunlight, map the floors so you can find out where it's safe to land. I think basically because it's going to be something like six to eight hundred times more sensitive, a CCD camera system, 800 times more sensitive than the most sophisticated, sensitive digital imaging systems we've ever sent to the moon, which was on the U.S. mission called uh, uh, Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. If that's true, then the real job of shadow cam is not to detect what's in the shadows in those craters. It's to find out where the domes have holes so that the Artemis mission can be safely landed and not blow itself to pieces by trying to land like the Indians did by crashing down through various layers of the ancient, ancient dome. And of course, they're not going to tell us any of this stuff. So we have to figure it out independently and publish independently and basically catch them in the act, which takes us to item number four. For the first time in my lifetime since 1962, since October of 1962, you know, there's these moments where you remember exactly where you were and what you were doing when certain historical things were taking place, like where you were when Kennedy was assassinated. Well, I also remember vividly where I was when the Cuban Missile Crisis was announced by then-President John Kennedy in a White House uh, Oval Office speech October afternoon. And we're coming up on exactly 60 years. I think it's next weekend. I think it's the 16th. To harking back to the Cuban Missile Crisis. And lo and behold, the current President of the United States, President Joseph Biden, at a fundraiser in New York the other night, uh, allowing himself to be put on the record. Uh, they didn't allow filming or, or audio taping, but he did allow reporters to be present at the speech, and he allowed them to record, like reporters used to do, in a notebook what he said to take it down. He basically compared the current situation vis-a-vis -vis Vladimir Putin and the war in Ukraine to the highest risk of a nuclear Armageddon in the last 60 years Harking back, of course, to the very upsetting and unsettling Cuban Missile Crisis in the fall of 1962. And he went into some detail as to how even a small use of nuclear weapons by Putin, a tactical nuke on some battlefield in Ukraine, could escalate instantly to an all-out nuclear war, i.e. the Armageddon part. And so there is no such thing as a limited nuclear war. And, uh, the, you know, Putin has, has basically threatened nuclear Armageddon from the get go, from the moment that, uh, uh, the war opened in Ukraine. He's been giving speeches threatening that any, any, uh, acts against, uh, uh, Russia will be met as an existential threat and they will be responded to by all weapons and means necessary, which of course includes in the lexicon nuclear weapons in his inventory. So that's kind of where we are tonight. We've got unmanned spacecraft heading to the moon. We've had NASA send a spacecraft over a 10-month journey that was supposed to nudge an asteroid and it looks like they did a lot more than just nudge it, which of course is the substance of the next three hours. And then in Ukraine, we have an all-out war between 
uh, Ukraine itself and the former Soviet Union, Russia, and the Russians are not faring well. Uh, there's been a major escalation in the form of a bridge to Crimea, which I think uh, one of our guests is going to talk about this morning. So we're literally poised on the edge. And of course, my question is, what can possibly intervene to change this extraordinarily negative trend curve of current history. In fact, I have uh, two people, one who's going to be on the air tonight and one who is not, but he emailed me separately. And he really thinks that this October or November is the most uh, dangerous time for what uh, Biden has uh, warned about the other night. And he's got a whole bunch of, you know, one of his sources, which turns out to be Ukrainian, um, uh, is basically reporting from on the ground. And there is very, very uh, uh, deep apprehension in Ukraine because of Putin being backed into a corner and having no way out. Well, let me tell you what one way out for Vladimir Putin could be, which would turn him into one of history's most vilified villains, into a potential hero. All he has to do is unveil all the records of the Soviet Union that we are not alone, including artifacts, including UFOs showing up over missile sites and turning off missiles in the old Soviet Union, like the same you know guys showed up over U.S. Uh, missile silos in Montana and South Dakota and did the same thing here. If he was to change the conversation, in other words, if he was to upgrade the Reagan-Gorbachev conversation, where Reagan and Gorbachev agreed at that summit back in the 80s that if there really were um, villainous ETs who were not, you know, who were basically did not have our best interests at heart, um, both the U.S. and the USSR back then would join together to confront the potential combined threat. That's all Putin has to do. Unveil the data that he's got, turn from villain to hero, stop the war in Ukraine, focus his attention upstairs toward the breakaways, who I firmly believe are trying to manipulate both sides in this Ukrainian insanity into doing something really dumb and stupid and thereby removing the larger galactic problem of Homo sapiens from the solar system. And that's a very long discussion with lots of uh, debatable points, which we will have in depth at another time, because in the midst of this backdrop, where all kinds of world-changing events are going on, last week, on the 26th of September, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration impacted a asteroid, a small uh, object roughly 500 feet across, which orbits a bigger object, roughly uh, half a mile across, and did something so extraordinary that observers all over the world, uh, amateurs, professionals, people in NASA, people outside NASA, everybody who has been following this mission is still trying to figure out what in fact happened. So that's item number six. If you go in that, that... Uh, uh, basically, we'll tell you everything you need to know about uh, uh, this first test of a so-called planetary defense system, because the model here is that, well, well, we'll get to the model momentarily, okay? Now, um, 
if that's the item number six. Item number seven, um, NASA next week, next Tuesday on the 11th, are going to hold their first major post-mission press conference. They held one, you know, like a couple of hours after impact and everybody's clapping everybody else in the back and rah, rah and cheer and oh, it seems to have worked. And I mean, they were really kind of concerned they would even hit the damn thing because it's so tiny after a looping journey uh, of several tens of millions, of hundreds of millions of miles that wound up hitting their target seven million miles away, almost dead center. So the test of the technology to do this seemed to be confirmed. In other words, if we're ever threatened by a potential impact on Earth from some kind of asteroid or comet heading our way, one of the means of deflecting it, of making an impact trajectory into a mistrajectory, is to catch it early, nudge it if you can, and thereby causing its orbit to diverge, because it doesn't take much to have an, an object crossing Earth's orbit when Earth is at that point to miss. It only has to miss by 8,000 miles, bingo, the width of the Earth, and you don't get a, a, an impact, you get a near miss. So if you do that several years ahead of time, and these orbits are such long looping orbits that they can take years to go around the sun once, I think Didymos, which was the target system, takes about two years to go around because it's what's called an Amor asteroid, which is an asteroid which comes closest to the sun just outside the Earth's orbit, something like a, you know, a few million miles. So if you catch it early, and you can nudge it by hitting it with something, think of it as interplanetary billiards, then by nudging it, even if you only change the velocity by a few millimeters per second, over years, that adds up. And ultimately, the object will wind up missing the Earth, which is the intent of the experiment to begin with. Well, when they did this, um, and item number 7A is the update on what they think they accomplished. We're looking for several things. <clears throat> One is, did they successfully change the orbit of, of, of Dimorphos, which is the little guy, the 500-foot wide guy, orbiting uh, Didymus, which is the bigger half-mile-wide guy? And we don't know yet. At least we might find out during this press conference, because I've got a network of amateur astronomers that I was able to kind of put together in the last couple of weeks. And they've been taking regular data and sending it to me and correlating it among themselves. And when I last looked at their data, they can find no trace of the regular 11-hour, 55-minute orbit of Dimorphos around Didymos. Remember, Didymos is the big guy, Dimorphos is the little guy. And those are both Greek names. And when Ron comes on, we will uh, have fun discussing their origins. Instead, if you look at item 7B, this is a um, um, collision video taken by the Atlas Project, which is a NASA-run asteroid avoidance uh, uh, surveillance network. Uh, based in Hawaii, it's got telescopes in South America, it's got telescopes in South Africa, and the ones in Hawaii recorded this video. I mean, look at that. It's looped. It's a GIF. But you can see that when uh, the DART spacecraft, which stands for Double uh, Asteroid Redirection Test, when it slammed at 4.1 miles per second into Dimorphos, 
Look what happened in the video at 7B. I mean, that was not supposed to happen. That's that's huge. That's enormous. I mean, it dwarfs any impacts. We've had two previous tests on a much smaller scale in the years prior to this. Nobody expected that. It's like, who ordered that? Something really major, something really unexpected, something completely unmodeled happened, and that was the result. Anyway, my guys, my network of amateurs, member citizen scientists, some of whom are located in South America, some of whom are located in the uh, Western United States, some of whom are located halfway around the world, they've all been looking and sending to my coordinator friend, uh, who's an amateur astronomer who's done this kind of work professionally for years, sent him the data. He's commonly reduced it, meaning he's kind of analyzed and presented in a common format all these amateur astronomers uh, imaging and videos and light curves and photometer readings. None of these people have been able to find a trace of the orbit of Dimorphos. It seems to have disappeared, which is, of course, what I the reason I, you know, named tonight's show what it is, because it looks like NASA destroyed the damn thing. The question before the House is, did they do it deliberately? Did they know it was going to happen? Or did they do it accidentally? And um, that'll be part of our discussion later on this evening. So, item number 7C. This is a uh, image taken by an Earth-based observatory showing... Uh, Didymos, which is still there and still bright enough to see, um, in a very interesting light because it appears that the impact turned an asteroid into a comet. It had developed when this photo was taken, which is a few hours after the impact by this uh, major Earth-based telescope. I forget which one. Um, it, it developed a tail. And the tail appears to be pointing away from the sun because it's being blown away by the radiation pressure of sunlight on the little teeny tiny micron-sized particles called dust particles, which make up these uh, tails in space. There's two kinds of tails in space. One is an ion tail, which is from gases evaporating from comets, and the other is a dust tail. And comets usually have two. They have an ion tail and a dust tail. Um, there only appears to be a dust tail extending out behind uh, Didymos because you can't obviously see the two little guys orbiting each other at this scale. You just see a little point of light, which is around 15th magnitude, which is really, 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 really dim. You know, sixth magnitude is human eye visibility limits in a dark desert. So it takes a pretty big telescope to see this stuff and record CCD images. And they found that it had developed a tail. Well, there is an inset in the bottom right of item 7C, and you'll see that there's also this very peculiar geometry around the entire Didymos system. We'll get to that in, in, a, in a minute, and we've only got a couple of minutes to the bottom of the hour, and then we'll bring on our guest of the morning. Item number 7D, these are Webble, Webble, Web and Hubble. <laughs> Yes, Mrs. Murgatroyd. Webb and Hubble images captured literally minutes after the impact. Hubble's on the left, Webb is on the right, and between the diffraction spikes, which are uh, basically off the uh, components of the telescope, you can see in both the Hubble visible imagery 
and in the web infrared imagery that all hell broke loose and you have these enormous jets uh, you know basically ejected at almost two miles per second into space that's what that video shows up above if you do the actual measurement the eject is coming off at almost two miles per second well um i'll tell you what that's probably enough for for this uh segment and i'm going to recommend we take a break and that everybody kind of uh, pause take a deep breath when we come back i'm going to introduce my guests of the morning and we're going to have the most extraordinary freeform discussion about what nasa really did in the Dudemo system because i think they did much much more than just inadvertently or maybe deliberately blow away an asteroid and that will provide the bulk of our conversation on the other side of midnight on this saturday october 8th 2022 my name is richard c hoagland we shall return Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, on the Saturday night edition of The Other Side of Midnight. Uh, Before we get to my guests, I want to do one more little thing here, which is to take you back to Radio with Pictures and look at item number eight. This is the diagram, which I borrowed or stole from someone. I can't remember who. I think it's a Japanese diagram. They do really interesting diagrams. Kind of shows you the geometry of what we're going to talk about tonight. So you might want to refer to number eight periodically uh, as the conversation ensues. It basically shows you the geometry of the central object, the half mile wide Didymos uh, asteroid, orbited every 11 hours and 55 minutes before uh, impact by the Dimorphos satellite, the little moon, which is a little over 500 feet across. 
And there you can see the Dart spacecraft, 1,200 pounds, uh, moving toward the target on the facing side of Dimorphos. Dimorphos orbits in the direction counterclockwise, uh, the uh, blue arrow. The Dart spacecraft is approaching uh, in the direction of the yellow arrow, and so there was a combined collision of, of uh, Dart with Dimorphos coming basically like a head-on collision on a freeway, except that something like 4.1 miles per second, that's over 14,000 miles per hour. The energy transferred, which NASA never published, they never actually published uh, uh, the, the numbers for what this was going to do. They always said, oh, it's just going to create this kind of little crater on uh, Dimorphos, and then we'll go back in a couple of years with a European mission called HERA uh, and take close-up pictures, go into orbit, kind of survey the system, see what we did. We'll measure the light curve as seen from Earth and see if we slow Dimorphos down. And of course, when you slow an orbiting object down, its orbital period speeds up. Remember, lower orbits move faster than higher orbits. These are uh, Kepler's laws. And that's why a low spacecraft orbiting the Earth orbits around every 90 minutes. Uh, objects at 22,000 plus miles take 24 hours to go around because they're 22,000 miles up in space compared to just a couple of hundred for low Earth orbit. So higher orbits are slower, lower orbits are faster. And the idea was with the impact to transfer energy from the impacting dart, from the kinetic energy simply of, of the movement of this, you know, 1,200-pound spacecraft slamming into Dimorphos at over four miles per second. And I've calculated that the equivalent energy in terms of TNT would be if you had basically placed a, uh, a bomb inside, not on the surface, but inside Dimorphos and set it off equivalent to between 4,000 and 6,000 pounds of TNT. There's some error in those numbers because some of the numbers they published are not exactly accurate. And so there's a kind of a range. Now, I know because I went and looked this stuff up, a 4,000 pound bomb, um, you know, unloaded on Baghdad or London during the war or whatever, basically can obliterate a city block. Uh, Dimorphos was roughly the size of a city block. And what was really bizarre and that tells me why NASA did not publish any of these numbers beforehand. All they said was that the impact might change the period of Dimorphos uh, by about 10 minutes. So instead of being 11 hours, 55 minutes, it might be down to 10 hours and 45 minutes, um, which would indicate a very efficient transfer of energy, a deflection of the asteroid, and a confirmation of the redirection model, that this could be part of the arsenal we would use if we ever found and calculated that there was an asteroid heading toward the Earth, and you would use kinetic energy of impact to basically try to divert it. That was the idea. That was how this was sold. Well, one of the really weird things is uh, there are various websites that uh, are out there like unmannedspaceflight.com and nasaspaceflight.com and many others. And they have participants who actually are from inside NASA. Some of them use their real names. Some of them use, uh, you know, pseudonyms. But they really are kind of an inside view of what's going on 
physically, in terms of calculations, the physics of what the inside NASA view is when these people post on these various boards. And one of them did an interesting calculation. Of course, they didn't do it before the impact, but when they saw what happened, and that's item number nine, I mean, look at that extraordinary um, uh, outflux of material. Look at the geometry of of eight, and then look at the geometry of nine. For some reason, the imagery coming down from DART from the so-called Draco telescopic camera was upside down and backwards. So what I've done is I rearranged the geometry. So the impact debris coming off is identical to the geometric impact that you see in number eight. So number nine is from this little Licha cube, uh, cube set that the Italians built for NASA and put on board like a hitchhiker. And it was dumped off like 15 days ahead of the uh, impact. And so you see it there in item number eight. That's that little uh, cube set with the little wings called uh, Licha cube, L-I-C-I-A cube. The photograph in nine, the image, is from that dropped off satellite, which was about 30 miles away when the impact occurred. Now, 30 miles, they thought would be a good safe standoff distance. In fact, the debris from this incredible event may have reached as far as uh, Leecher Cube. We don't quite know that yet. Uh, we may find out uh, on Tuesday when NASA holds this press conference at two o'clock um, Eastern time in the afternoon on Tuesday afternoon. October 11th. Mark it on your calendars. There's links there in that uh, item number. What is the item num number? It's item number um, three. No, I'm sorry. Sorry. Two. Item. No, I'm sorry. I'm really bollocksing this up. It's item number 7A. That's where you will find. Um, is it 7A? No, it's item number. Uh, item number six. I'm sorry, item number six. That will be an update from NASA on the uh, um, impact that happened two weeks ago. Uh, I had these in a different order and we rearranged them, so that's the reason why I'm sounding a little befuddled tonight. Don't mind me. I'm just here to, you know, run the board. Anyway, so item number nine, that extraordinary set of, of uh, ejecta in all directions also appear to have some very interesting geometry. And so what we're going to talk about tonight is what did NASA intend to do? What did they actually wind up doing? And I'll save the rest of my slides for uh, later in the evening as the uh, conversation progresses. I might want to call your attention to 10 and 11. These are now close-ups of the two spacecraft, not to scale. That's item number 12. Uh, look at item number 10. That's uh, Didymos, half a mile across, looking very geometric. In fact, looking like a diamond, literally. Lucy in the sky with diamonds. Then you've got a close-up of Dimorphos, the satellite, not to scale, because if it was to scale, you wouldn't see much. And you can see there's all kinds of interesting rubble across its surface, including very geometric rubble, and we'll get into conversations on that. Item number 12, some years ago, NASA flew by an asteroid. Uh, I'm sorry, the Europeans flew by an asteroid en route to a cometary uh, rendezvous. And the asteroid was called Steins. And that's the uh, best shot that uh, we have of Steins, which was about four miles uh, 
across the equatorial region, and that's Didymos by by comparison size to the same scale. Didymos is half a mile. Steins was about four miles. You can see, however, that both have this very peculiar diamond-shaped geometry. So, what I want to do now is I want to introduce our guests of the evening because they're going to be taking the brunt of this conversation because they have been doing some really interesting um, uh, research work in the last couple of weeks, and they've got remarkably interesting results. So let's start with Andrew. Uh, Andrew is a commercial uh, illustrator. He does storyboards. He does uh, uh, movies. He does commercials. He basically lays out plot lines and scripts for producers and actors and people who want to fund movies and high-end commercials. He's done Super Bowls and he's done major feature films and all that. What he's been doing the last two weeks at my request is sketching, sketching, um, Didymos and Dimorphos. And I see that we have a, a interesting bunch of, of sketches here, uh, which, which I don't, do we have the right sketches? Uh, maybe I need to refresh. Okay. So let me introduce, uh, yes, we do. Yes. Sorry. Just my not refreshing. Okay. So without further ado, let me start the evening off with Andrew, Andrew Curry. Come on down. Hey, Richard. Thanks for having me on again. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, what can I say? Richard, these look like spaceships to me. I'm going to just come out and say it, and then we'll go in and, and look at my posters. And, um, you know, one of the things that we've talked about many times on this show is we make these big declarations, these big speculative statements. And, you know, one of the ways to um verify at least some of our speculation is finding images from different angles and seeing if you know similar patterns are happening and this is the kind of thing that when you asked me to do this little project about looking at these two uh objects i call them objects i call them artificial uh i tried to look at it from different you know different perspectives the shots that we're getting either from the um the Italian cube set or even from the DART mission itself. And over and over again, Richard, it's for me reconfirming that this stuff is artificial. There's there's symmetry, there's high level of geometry, there's a lot of straight lines and sharp corners. I mean, I was driving by a, a big boulder the other just the other day and I'm looking at there's a little <laughs> roughness at the bottom of it. No, I'm serious. I'm looking Yeah, at I, I I do the same thing. I keep looking at natural things and I say, how would I know if I saw that on a satellite image that it wasn't natural or artificial? Yeah, and it brings me to my poster number one. So if we go to the other side of midnight.com and go to the show page banner and tap on that and then you come to um like the guest page and you go fast links to items. So mine is under Andrew and if you go to my first item uh, it's called Didymos One, and it's uh, you know it's I guess moments after the explosion, and this is this would be the Italian cube set, right? Yeah, the Lycia cube, mm -hmm. uh, one of the shots. And you asked me originally, take a look at take a look at Dimorphos and the you know the symmetry. But I, the first thing that caught my eye, Richard, was Didymos, <laughs> was this um, extraordinary part 
underneath. Oh, well, I'm calling it underneath. We don't know that. And there's all these uh, right angles. Well, it's on, it's on the side facing away from Dimorphos because right. these two little yeah. objects obviously orbiting each other are in tidal lock. In other words, they both rotate. Actually, I, I belay that. I, I don't mean that at all. Didymos used to rotate in about two hours and 20 minutes, okay? Once around. Dimorphos is tidally locked with Didymos, and it rotated every 11 hours and 55 minutes because you can see in the literal egg shape that it's it's tidally uh, distorted by the gravity, the right. teeny tiny gravity of Didymos. I mean, these things are not super giants. They're very, very low gravity. But given enough time, even low gravity will warp things to be kind of in conformance. So Didymos is the smaller half-mile object spinning like crazy um, compared to other asteroids. And, uh, I mean, two hours. Um, it turns out that if it spun just a little bit faster in the equations that NASA's developed, it would fly apart from centrifugal force. Mm. So it's literally rotating as fast as it could rotate. And if it was nudged to be just a little faster, it would it would basically come apart like a flywheel uh, in some foundry spinning too fast. Well, as I said, uh, this first image, and I know it's really bleached out. Like it's just not a. I don't know why we. Why is the shot so bleached out, Richard? I was just wondering about that. Is it just? Well, what they did is because they didn't have very good photometrics. They had to. Okay. They had to arrange in the computer on the CubeSat for the camera to take a range of images. You know, bang, 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 with a yeah, okay. range of exposures. So they okay. would catch, because they imagined that they would have just a little tiny ejecta plume, and they wanted to catch it against dark space. Yeah, okay. They never imagined that this holy hell would break loose. Yeah. Well, on this first shot, I just, as I said, I saw immediately the symmetry on on the larger body. Didymos, right? We're getting, I'm, I'm mm -hmm. just getting this flipping back and forth and i don't know it means didymos means twin yeah yeah and to me this i mean look at that just you don't even look at my drawing i mean i brought out some detail but i think the photograph is better than even my rendering but i just wanted to punch it up a little more i i you know that's one example i mean i'm seeing just repeating shapes and if we bounce out of that Oh, no, sorry. Let's not do that yet. Let's go to the image at the bottom. I did a little – I found a little um, graphic, kind of like you with the Japanese one, mm -hmm. about, the, about the size of these things. And um, so Dimorphos is 163 meters, um, I guess as big as the um, – it's, it's almost bridge. 600 feet. It's 560 feet, I think, is the yeah. actual number. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's sort of as big as the – I guess the Great Pyramid of Giza. Yep. And – Didymos Which is 483 is. feet, so it's actually slightly bigger than slightly the Great bigger. Pyramid, and that's not what the yeah. Great Pyramid looks like. But okay, no, I, <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking that too. Somebody's really screwing up there. It's a very slender pyramid. If nobody's maybe they were Russians because those are Russian <laughs> style pyramids. Yes, yeah, maybe. And then Didymos, of course, is you know much larger, 780 meters. Uh, which is is that the the tower from? Uh, Dubai? Yes. I think it, yeah, that's the world's tallest there. building in Dubai, yeah. whose TV antenna on the top is actually bigger than Didymos. Not by much, yeah. but by a little. Yeah. And so I just thought I would put that in there as a size comparison. I mean, you did – I think you did a very similar thing. But that's just a little trivia. And I, I actually 
later I'm I'm working on a little something and I I'll when the other guests come on I'm going to try to finish it and I promised Keith I wouldn't add anything but I want to cuz I have a little personal note at the end I wouldn't mind adding in. Oh, cool. So I'll tease the tease the audience with that. So let's bounce out of that go to my number 2 poster. This one I just called Didymos 2. And this is sort of I think kind of like an opposite angle Richard. I mean it looks like it's just a flip side of it from the um, no, 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 no. We only saw the one side. When you see right. different arrangements, it's because they kept flipping the images upside down and mirroring them left oh, and right. Yeah. And I don't know whether that's just accidental or deliberate to confuse right. people who don't follow yeah. this closely. But no, we've seen none of the other side. They were supposed to fly past with a little CubeSat and photograph Didymos and Dimorphos and the ejecta from the opposite geometry, 180 degrees. They may show us some of that on Tuesday, and they may not. Okay. All right. Well, again, in this image, I, I'm seeing – I mean, again, it's very, very fuzzy. I get it. And again, I think even my drawing is not even as strong as, as, as the images that are here. But it eerily reminded me of the Ares 1B lunar carrier in 2001, A Space Odyssey. Now, I'm not suggesting that's right, what it is right. at all. <clears throat> but – just this kind of idea of this transport and the shape. I mean, I know the shape is more of a diamond shape rather than the lunar carrier, which was more of like a circle, Well, what but- they did is they overexposed this so um, you could be seeing layers above the diamond shape because on the high highest resolution that I got of Didymos, there appears to be eroded upper layers to the hull. And I use that term very specifically. I mean, human objects in space for 60 million years, give or take, uh, which is how old I think this stuff might be. Over time, micrometeorites will erode, 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 but the upper stuff is the most eroded. The lower stuff is protected by the upper yeah. stuff, so you don't get a sharp edge. You get a diffuse network of increasing density with lots and lots and lots of holes. And yeah. I think the geometry before the, we'll call them meteor shields, were blasted away had a different shape than the diamond underneath. So because this is so overexposed, you may be seeing the very low density, very dark upper layers that the overexposure brought out, either again accidentally or deliberately. Yeah. Well, again, from another angle, uh, this is, I guess, my number four on the second poster. It's called um, Didymos Lycia Cube. And... In this one, Richard, what I'm seeing, and I did a little drawing again, is you see a tip, a tip. You see all these sort of converging lines mm. in our sort of diamond shape, and you literally can see a highlight at the very. It's like point, an apex. You, it's like the point exactly, of an arrow. Exactly. Or, or a like, warhead, you know. <laughs> Although yeah, a half mile wide warhead is not really, it's, it's a metaphor, guys. Just a metaphor. Yeah. But again, Richard. See, I these mean, symmetries are what yeah. really, to me, are the, are the giveaway. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And and they they don't stop. It just keeps repeating. So if we if we bounce out of this little poster and go to my number three, so this would be uh I call this Didymos three, it's just real simple. And this would have been the dart um darting past <laughs> and taken and, and I guess it's a screen capture from one of the um Uh actually no. No, it's a very oh, high res image that came out of NASA and then a friend of mine did some work on it. Look at the fuzziness around yeah. the edges. That's the upper levels of the hull 
which have been eroded away to where they're kind of like the ancient lunar dome. Yeah. You know, there's only a pale vestige of what it used to be, <clears throat> but it means you're looking at layering and the top parts protect the bottom layers. And But see, it's that diamond geometry that I just find. Yeah. And then there's all the geometry on the surface. Yes. Yeah, I, I didn't go into that on this one but because I, I was looking for this ribbing. Like literally it looks like, you know, a, a superstructure underneath this thing. And so my drawing, I did one, which um, I tried to reveal. And then I did a kind of a speculative one. Uh, it's my number three. I call it Didymos Faces of a Diamond Digital Illustration 2022. Like it would have looked like when it was new. Yeah, exactly. And of course, it's just a it's just a sketch. It's an idea, but again, symmetry. It's called a concept, <clears throat> concept art. It, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and I, Richard, for me, it's just more verification that these are very very unusual um, discoveries. Yeah, I, and so if we bounce out of that one and go to my number four. Doing a lot of bouncing um, tonight, okay. Yeah, we're bouncing. <laughs> I like try to bounce it. Bouncy, bouncy, bouncy. <laughs> so now I'm focusing on Demorphous, and there was two spots. Which again, for I'm, those people not following the bouncing ball, see there was a, there was a pun there. Didymos is half a mile across. Dimorphos is 560 feet, almost 600, like two football fields, you know, edge to edge. Yeah. And this is, again, just to tease out, I'm going to, Keith, I'm going to send you something a little later because um, it's oh, a little personal. Oh, so cool. <laughs> Look what you've well, done. Yeah, yeah. So I grabbed, okay, this reminds me, Richard, of a show we did way back. I think Keith Laney was on it. And we were looking at Bennu, these beautiful, again, sort of uh, octahedron-shaped uh, so-called asteroids. And there were all these strange things on top of these asteroids, which we kind of like – I think Keith had captured one that looked like the Millennium Falcon. And again, I think we're looking at something very unusual on the surface. So if we scroll down a little bit to my number two, this is mm -hmm. close up. A to me has very peculiar shape. I did a little illustration. Um, I don't know, Richard. I'm, uh, I'm seeing structure. I'm seeing a lot of – right angles i'm seeing i think these are two smaller like spaceships scout ships yep. shuttles like the enterprise shuttle yep. parked on the surface of this bigger moonlet <clears throat> this space station this whatever this bigger thing was 600 feet across and i think they've been were left there and they're just eroded to hell because they're so old in fact the one b looks almost like some images i've seen of potential nazi Flying saucer spacecraft that are know. somewhere, you know, with that double ring of the of the uh, apex of the of the hull and all that. Yeah. These things look like little ships. They don't look like appendages that are part of the underlying spacecraft. They look like little things that set down, were abandoned, and have been quietly decaying into rubble for millions of years. It really has that feel. It has. Oh, there variety. you are. Look, look at the sketch below B. You got yes, you got the yeah. double ring perfectly. Yes. Yeah. 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 So that and again, you know, again, symmetry. There's a variety. It's yeah. It's amazing. It's almost mm. like different. We've talked about this different it's models. It's the different. geometry, stupid. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so I know we're getting close to the top of the hour. So let's go to my number five. And I, I, you mentioned it, uh, and I drew it, and then I compared it. So I took a. 
some images from uh, some Star Trek. You oh, know, like, look at that. Yeah. So the, I know one of them is the well, remember, in space, not only can't they hear you scream, but you don't need streamlining. <clears throat> exactly. And, and it just caught – I mean, again, it's one angle. Geometry. Uh, yeah, I, exactly, Richard. For me, this is speaking of something highly organized, something structured, but like you say, so heavily decayed and messed up over time that it's just – it's become something that's – you know, like here on Earth, it would be something sitting in water like an old tank or an old plane sitting in the bottom of the ocean or something and just decaying over time, or like the Titanic, you know, and I'm seeing the same kinds of things. So, yeah, so that's my um, my uh, sort of my illustrations for tonight and my speculations, and I'm going to add a little something later on and clear the way for everybody else. Excellent. Well, this is a perfect segue to Ron, because Ron, have had, I've been having this kind of running conversation for the last week, and I kept telling him, you know, we don't want to leave it on the cutting room floor. We want to save it for the show. So we basically not sorted out anything. We are, we are kind of at loggerheads on on Ron's model, but there are parts of Ron's model that I totally agree with, and there are parts of Ron's model that I do not agree with. So before we get to Ron, since we got a couple minutes to the bottom of the hour, kind of give me your big picture. Um, the thing that bothered me when I kind of tracked back the discovery process of this system, Didymos and Dimorphos, it was first found in 1996 by a bunch of, you know, guys, professional astronomers at, I think, um, um, uh, one of the big Hawaiian telescopes. And then it wasn't until 2003 uh, at a mainland telescope, I believe it was Kitt Peak, but I might be wrong, or the Stewart Observatory in Arizona, where another group of guys found the little satellite, uh, Dimorphos, and found the light curve, the 11-hour, 55-minute light curve, and the fact that the orbit of Dimorphos around Didymos is exactly arranged so that every 11 hours, 55 minutes, Dimorphos would go in front of Didymos and there would be an eclipse, or what we call a transit. And it would last a few minutes, and then Dimorphos would go around behind, and it would be eclipsed. And this was all decoded by means of light curves, because no one was actually seeing this system as two little twinks orbiting each other, because they're so small compared to how far away they were. And it was not until we got those Draco images, we actually saw the surface of these with optical cameras for the first time, although Arecibo did do some radar imaging some years ago, which gave us a rough uh, diamond shape for Didymos in the literature going back several years. <clears throat> What's really interesting to me was the fact that, A, the orbit plane was aligned exactly to where you could see it only from the Earth eclipsing, and B, the 11 hours, 55 minute period. And I'm going to leave this question now till after the break, but why wasn't the orbital period exactly 12 minutes? It's so close. Was it maybe originally 12 hours, not 11.55? And why was it changed? And does that give us a clue to how long the system was in place waiting for us, for NASA, for the human race to come and find it? And that's the prelude to our conversation with Ron Gerbron when we return. 
You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return right after this short break. Don't touch that dial. You have no idea what you would be missing. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Thank you.